morning. You guys are super spread out this morning. I'm going to have my head on a pivot trying to preach to all of you. It's all right. So we're going to get back into the flow this week. We've had a somewhat uh, uneven sermon rhythm uh, with the annual meeting back in late January and last week's teaching on worship and liturgy. So we'll be in Matthew 5 today. We're entering, in some ways, it's not fully fair. I'm kind of throwing you in the middle of a conversation. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's going on. So we're jumping in midstream, and Jesus is laying out the ethics of the kingdom of God. Here's what the kingdom of God should look like. Never one to shy away from controversial subjects. Jesus takes on uh, several hot topics, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths. I mean, to me, it sounds like a good Johnny Cash album, but maybe that's just me. Jesus refers back to some foundational Old Testament texts, and here's a pattern that you've heard if you listen at all to the, uh, the scripture reading. You have heard this said, X, right? But I tell you, why? Now, this is a rabbinic technique. This is a way of teaching. It doesn't deny or negate the Old Testament scriptures. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is his way of explaining and expositing it. A little different than we're used to, probably. And as Jesus himself said earlier in Matthew 5, he's not here to abolish the law. He's going to fulfill the law. So it's kind of like him saying, let me tell you the point of the law. You might know the letter, but let me tell you the spirit of it. Your religious culture tells you that the scriptures say this, but let me tell you where you missed the boat. So there's this pattern. You've heard it said, but I tell you, and we're going to hear that over and over again. Jesus moves us from outward appearances, i.e. just sort of concrete human behavior like murder, uh, divorce, these things. He's going to penetrate into the things that underlie that, our inner thoughts, our inner desires, our inner motivations. Uh, as 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord looks at the heart. Okay? And that's what's going on here. The root of our behavior interactions is our heart. And what Jesus proposes, I think, is far more demanding than keeping the law on the level of mere appearances. The religious order of his day, they were obsessed with this. I mean, they were down with that, right? They knew about keeping up appearances and meeting the law on an appearance level, regardless of what the heart is actually doing or even engaged. One of my friends says this about the Old Testament. This is his best boiling it down to an essence. He says, you know, the message of the Old Testament is kind of like, don't sin and don't want to sin. I'm like, yeah, that's, uh, that's challenging. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Don't sin, don't want to sin? Is that even possible? Is he calling us to fulfill the law? Let's find out. Okay, Matthew 5, 21 through 37. First few verses are dedicated to murder. It starts off with a bang. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, and he goes on to talk about anger. Jesus is paraphrasing Exodus 20, 13. He's pulling from Mosaic law. This is the Decalogue. This is the Ten Commandments. He's pulling on the Sixth Commandment directly, okay? Sin here is murder, and murder is seen there is, uh, it's an unjust and, and intentional taking of life, okay? It's not accidental. There's concessions made for that. This is an intentional taking of someone's life. And Jesus proceeds really quickly to proceed to the sin, which actually comes before the behavior, which is anger. Now, even though anger was condemned in the Old Testament, it was never equated directly with murder. Jesus makes it just as bad, very radical. So do we avoid just getting angry then or just pretend? No. I mean, it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. Is it a sin to be angry? Well, if it is, then God's in trouble because God is said to be angry. But in your anger, do not sin, okay? That's the, that's the admonition. So is it a sin to have unrighteous anger? 
I'm giving you kind of a lob there. Somebody needs to just crack that out of the park. Is it a sin to have unrighteous anger? Yes. Thank you. Throw a guy a bone here. I appreciate that. Yes, it is. Righteous anger, far harder to come by than we can imagine. There's the rub. Our motives are mixed together. We so easily devolve to self-righteous anger. So, like, ever since I've been a little kid, I've had what I, well, I've, I named it later in life, the justice meter, because I had this thing inside me, and I would say this. You ask my parents, they will tell you, that's not fair. That's not fair. I had this inborn sense of justice, mostly on behalf of, guess who? Me. <laughs> right? Like, is this just for me? Sometimes, in my better moments, it would bleed out to other people, but there was this inner sense of self-righteousness, self-righteous anger of, like, this isn't fair. Occasionally, it was for the right things. Often, it was just like, this isn't fair for me. Okay? So, righteous anger is hard to come by, really hard to come by. Jesus goes on and says, if you call someone a fool, and probably a better equivalent of that would be calling someone an idiot, Right? It's a strong word, but it's not vulgar. It's not uncommon. Uh, the modern-day equivalent might be you're driving along, somebody cuts you off, you give them the bird. Okay, That's the modern-day message equivalent. What Jesus excavates here is the sin of contempt that's underneath that behavior, calling someone a fool, right? That sort of hidden loathing that's there, maybe it's, maybe it's hatred. I don't know, the sin of contempt. Okay. Now, while murder... Jesus is going to go on to say, that might land you in a, in a human court. Uh, there is a higher court at work here. You know, you don't go to prison for calling somebody a fool or an idiot. But Jesus is speaking of a higher court than a human court here. This is where the human heart is laid bare, where our intentions and motivations are just, they're there, out in the open. And Jesus describes us, if you call it the gospel reading, in real peril, in real danger here. Thus, this talk of the fires of hell and judgment. Jesus mentions hell here. It's mentioned, it's, it's intended, I should say, to jolt us. If we're in a place of complacency, is it supposed to be an ice bath? You better believe it. Absolutely. It's supposed to jolt us back into reality. Jesus' point here, anger renders us liable. The word liable happens three times in 22. Because when you get angry, you're going to find it really hard probably impossible to act righteously. As I said, righteous anger, man, it's rarer than hen's teeth. Good luck finding it. That's why it's often that wise advice. What do people tell you when you get angry? What's one of the big things to do? Count to 10, stop, take a step back, don't react, pray, cool down, right? There's a 99.9% .9 chance you're gonna sin against somebody if you move towards them in that anger, right? So pressing the point, Jesus gives us a picture. Uh, if you come to worship to offer your gift, right? This is the picture. And you know, this is interesting, that your brother or sister has something against you. Take the initiative. Take care of that issue before you worship. Go reconcile. The same principle is at work in the peace, which we do every single Sunday. That immediately comes before, if you'll notice, it's right before the Lord's table. That is purposeful. While it is a chance to bless each other, and I talk about that every week, the main purpose for the peace is to guess what? To mend fences. <laughs> the main purpose is literally to go make peace with someone before you come to the Lord's table, to make things right between you and someone else, regardless of who's at fault. I love that. It doesn't matter whether you're the offended or the offendee, you make it right. Jesus is going to turn up the heat even more. 
So listen to the context of this passage. Track with me here. The altar, Jesus is speaking of, you bring your gift to the altar, most certainly means the altar in the temple. Where's the temple? Jerusalem. Jesus in this passage is preaching in Galilee. That's about 80 miles away. So let me do, let me do some math with you. Here's the picture Jesus is evoking. A worshiper has traveled 80 miles, probably took three or four days, to Gal- from Galilee to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice, right? Probably an animal sacrifice, their offering. Here she realizes, uh-oh, I need to go reconcile with someone before I make my offering. So they make the journey back to Galilee. Literally, this is adding on, it's like adding a week to go do this, to go reconcile with their brother and their sister. That's how serious Jesus is. That's a big deal. That's a woe moment for me. Go take care of business. This is a theme the prophets harped on over and over. Your worship should match the way you live, right? I don't want your perfunctory offerings. I don't want it. When things are right between you and your neighbor or when you break my commandments, go take care of business. Go do that. Jesus is speaking of the great commandment here. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Guess what? Those two things, they're, they're bound together. Can't say that I hate my neighbor, but I love God. Nope, God won't take that offering. He'll reject it. And if you look at verses 25 and 26, Jesus puts some heat on this. He puts some urgency here. He speaks of this uh, situation with the court and the accusers and the judge, and you're in the hot seat. Uh, You never know what's going to happen next, so be wise. Make hay while the sun is shining. Deal with it in a timely manner and do it with diligence. Jesus is really practical here, very practical spirituality. Sin festers when you don't deal with it, so take care of business. Now notice, when something is of high importance, let's say... You're, you, uh, you have one car. You're, let's say you're in a household that has one car. What happens when your one car breaks? Do you just go, maybe I'll take care of that in a couple weeks? Is that what you do? No. No. You're motivated, right? You have you, you got to have your transportation. You got to get to work. You got to get to the grocery store. You got to be able to do this stuff. When something's of high importance, guess what? We rearrange everything and we make it happen. Okay? You prioritize your schedule to make it happen. Urgent, important, no procrastination. That's sort of the picture Jesus is getting at here is something along those lines. And that was just murder and anger. On to adultery, on to sunnier matters. Verse 27 to 30, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But we'll play that out. Jesus again, paraphrasing Exodus. This is 2014 from the Decalogue. Seventh commandment. Specific context for that is this is a man who has some sort of sexual relationship with another man's wife. So he's guilty of sin. Like murder, adultery is spoken of here uh, with, it implies intention and forethought, okay? Planning. But the sin that actually precedes the act of adultery, Jesus says, is lust, which is a form of covetous. This phrase, uh, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, let me clarify here a little bit. Jesus isn't referring to noticing someone is beautiful. Lust is a step beyond that, or several steps sometimes. Lust lingers. Lust imbibes. Lust is a thought that's been given lodging, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, The sin of lust comes about because it's been well-fed and well-nurtured and given a safe haven. And it just quickly turns into cancer in our souls. That's when we know lust has its hooks in us. Now, while this particular section, if you're paying attention, is indeed aimed at men, uh, everybody lusts for something, right? Everybody lusts for something. 
Uh, women lust for, for, as well it just looks different than it does for men. And behind lust is the desire to control, to possess something, to covet, right? Uh, I want to take something that isn't mine, all right? We all, and we all know what this is like. Every one of us do. This isn't just men. This is just women. We all know what it's like to try to desire, see something. It simply isn't ours to do that with. Now, we get into this uh, rather interesting part of, of the passage. Uh, is self-mutilation the answer, right? Your eyes giving you problems. Pluck that sucker out. <laughs> Cut your hand off. Is that the answer? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is this a literal admonition? I'm waiting for someone to uncomfortably say, yes. <laughs> no, not literal. But I do want you to see Jesus is certainly testing our resolve here. He is deadly serious. And he's saying to us, how serious are you about dealing with your sin? How serious are you? Better to be an amputee in this life and lose part of yourself than your whole body be thrown into hell. So he's not messing around. Not messing around. On to divorce. <laughs> Verses 31 and 32. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He's referencing Deuteronomy 24, 14 this time. And this passage says in the Old Testament that not handling a divorce is a, uh, properly is a sin. So there's a certain uh, uh, process you have to step through, if you will. Notice the language, giving your wife a certificate of divorce. Anybody catch that? You ladies go, hey, hold on a minute. No? Okay, all right, I'm going to keep talking about it. Divorce at this time was a purely male prerogative, okay? No legal hearing was necessary. Nope. It was merely a husband's choice, and under Jewish law, women couldn't initiate a divorce. A man could. A woman couldn't. That's the reason Jesus is, is riffing off this as he is. He's going to move far beyond this and say that divorce, except for infidelity, is a sin, He's making it much, much harder for a man to leave his wife for sort of these arbitrary or trivial or selfish reasons. And incidentally, in that day and age, you could divorce for incredibly trivial uh, reasons. So he's speaking to a very live issue, uh, maybe more trivial than it is today. So very interesting. Now, this is a hard section. Some of that is because of Jesus' brevity. He doesn't go into all the ins and outs of divorce here. He doesn't go into everything. He doesn't address some of our pressing questions. But yeah, yeah Jesus, but, but hey, what if he doesn't, he doesn't go into that? There are some key nuances. There's some exceptions fleshed out in other places in Scripture. But what does he say? Let's focus on that because that's what we have here. He lays down a general principle. The person who divorces their spouse for any other case than infidelity is just as unfaithful as the adulterer or the lustful person. That should make many of us very uncomfortable. It's very radical. It's very unrelenting. It's uncompromising. Jesus, is that what you mean? Is it? Well, let's look at marriage a little bit briefly here. Marriage is a covenant between God, uh, before God, and witnessed by a community of people. You make vows to each other, right? You make promises to each other. When divorce happens, Jesus is saying it's because we betray our spouse. We aren't faithful to the covenant that we made with them. For most folks, the cost of remaining faithful in marriage is just too high, it's too hard, it's too restrictive, right? 
Surely God wouldn't call me to stay in a difficult marriage. I mean, my husband or wife isn't a Christian. God wouldn't call me to that, would he? Or he or she doesn't love me anymore. God wouldn't call me to that, would he? We need to understand something, and it is the one flesh union that Jesus talks about and Paul. Uh, it's in other places as well. But spiritually speaking, when divorce happens, we take what God has made one flesh and we separate it. Okay? So here's the image, and it is graphic. We literally take a living body and we cleave it in two. It's violent. We dismember it. It's awful. So Jesus is being really clear here. doesn't mean it's beyond repair or future redemption, but it does have tremendous natural consequences, and it leaves a damaging wake. So it's taking a living body, what is one, and dismembering it and cutting it into two pieces. So it means business. Jesus is unabashedly calling us to be true to our marriage, to our spouse in every instance other than the betrayal of sexual immorality. Thus his comments in 32 about the subsequent remarriage being an adulterous one. Here's Jesus' logic. Just track with me. When the divorce isn't legitimate, except for adultery, the original marriage is still valid in God's sight. That's the implication here. Very countercultural, very radical, very demanding. Now, if you think Jesus' intention here is to call, cause married folk like myself a very serious moment of pause, you're right. He does. Take a good honest look at yourselves in your marriage, right? In practice, this section, as demanding as it is, asks us to love and serve our spouse. How far you'll go to protect your marriage, stay true to your spouse, it brings that question up, not out of duty, but out of love and devotion and, and sacrifice for this person. Now, I realize more could be said of divorce here. This is not a full scriptural treatment. I know that. We don't have time to do all that this morning. We're just dealing with what this text says right here. And I think what I want you to get is this. There's a gravitas to what Jesus is saying. At the very least, very high call to fidelity and love in marriage. It's no adultery, okay? But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He says lust is the root of unfaithfulness. And guess what? Oh, man, we're all guilty of that. We've all lusted or coveted something or someone that wasn't ours. So that leaves us, all of us, all y'all, me too, in dire straits. Closing with oaths and vows, slightly lighter, maybe not, verses 33 to 37. You've heard it said, don't swear falsely, and it goes on. Jesus isn't doing exact quotation here. He's kind of pulling from this uh, melange of several Old Testament passages about oaths and vows that are sort of peppered throughout the Pentateuch. You'll find them in Leviticus. You'll find them in Deuteronomy and Numbers. It's, it's all there. Now, Jesus might be echoing the ninth commandment, you know, pulling on bearing false witness against someone, might be riffing off of the third commandment, misuse of God's name, kind of bring God into an equation, making an oath based off that. It was a sin to break an oath, okay, in that day and age. It was a sin. So Jesus says, don't even take an oath. Is he implying it's a sin to take an oath? Culturally, um, different just a different vibe than it is for us. Taking oaths then was very common. There are rules, there are regulations about how these things were supposed to go down, right? Some tried to avoid taking an oath so they wouldn't sort of indict themselves to something. I, I might not want to keep that promise, so I'm not going to do that. The rabbis of this day and age were literally obsessed with these forms of oaths. I mean, there was pages, pages, tomes are written on just this subject, 
in the Jewish Mishnah. Modern oath for us might be this. Uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I swear to God. Okay? That's a little banal, but you get it. Or do you swear to tell the whole, whole truth? You know, the, the line you say before you testify in court. Now, why do you need an oath? What's it for? I think it's uh, you need an oath when you're not real sure someone's going to actually tell the truth otherwise. <laughs> that's what oaths typically are there for. Typically, that's what they're there for. You're not sure somebody's going to tell the truth, so you try to ensure or compel them to tell you the truth based off appealing to some higher authority, swearing by God or swearing by the court or under oath, these things, right? Jesus is saying here, it's not that the oath that's the issue, it's the lack of integrity. Be true to your word. Yes, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Have integrity. If you stay true to your word, you don't need an oath. You don't need it. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. God witnesses, he sees every word we say and do anyway, so an oath offers no real assurance. Have integrity, and oaths become unnecessary. And yet, I know about you, uh, have you ever broken a promise, or have you always acted with 100% integrity? Raise your hand if you're 100% full of integrity. I'll sit down now. <laughs> uh, no, we've all broken our word. We've all broken our promise. We've all not been true to what God has called us to do. When I get to the end of this passage and when I see the call here and what Jesus is asking of us, uh, hmm, let's just say I'm not filled with, um, <laughs> how do I put this? I'm skeptical that I can accomplish that. Let's just say it that way. Philip Melanchthon says this, and this captures this passage beautifully. What your heart loves, your will chooses, and your mind justifies. See that progression? What your heart loves begins there. Your will chooses. Your mind justifies. All these things we've been talking about, and there's some pretty heavy things, right? These are issues of the heart. Every single one of them. The place where anger becomes murder is in the heart. The place where lust becomes adultery is in the heart. The place where marriages are broken, promises aren't kept, it's in the heart. The behavior, the outward sins, that's just the caboose. The heart is the engine and the locomotive that's driving that whole train. What your heart loves, your will chooses, and your mind justifies. Many of us, tell me if you've done this before, we go about trying to remedy the behavior, right? We kind of turn faith into sin management, right? Let me fix my behavior. But that's like treating the symptom without treating the actual illness. So, big surprise, we fail. <laughs> we fail. Let me give you one example. And this applies not to everyone, but I, just, I need a clear example. Think about dieting. Okay, I'm going to try to eat better and exercise more. Behavior, right? I'm going to fix the behavior. I'm going to, eat, I'm going to eat better, exercise more. Rather than examining why, why I might be given over to sloth or gluttony, right? Which is harder to fix the behavior to go, oh, here's what's driving that. What are we to do? Because what Jesus describes here in this passage, folks, it's impossible. It's, impo it's not just it's really hard. It's impossible. Don't sin and don't want to sin. That's a high calling. And listen to this. You don't believe me? Here's a little proof for you. 
Earlier in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or later, verse 48, Therefore, be, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't sin. Don't ever want to sin. And Jesus goes on for two more chapters detailing uh, things along these lines. Folks, uh, we're in a real quandary here reading through this passage. Our hearts are broken, and yet there's this calling to live differently as citizens of the kingdom. This can lead us to despair. This can lead us to self-hatred. This can lead us to defeated resignation. Lord, I can't do it. Bingo. Now we're talking. You're right. Can't do it. (laughs) You can't. You can't fulfill these things without Christ. We need him. We all fall short. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross, lest anyone boast. Right? We cannot do this on our own. Folks, that is our gospel. We can't do this on our own. This is our gospel. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom radically redefined by the gospel without God's divine initiative, without his intervention, without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. We desperately need God to come to our aid and change the problem, which is our heart. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to choose something other than the flesh. We can't fulfill the law, right? And that's part of Jesus' point. Guess what, guys? I'm going to do that. There's only one person who can fulfill the law and did, and that is Jesus. So I say this to you today, knowing that some of you believe in Jesus and follow him. Some of you might not. I don't know. In your heart of hearts, I don't know. But perhaps today you simply need to say, Jesus, I can't. But you can. Jesus, I can't. But I know you can. This is divine relief, folks. That is the soul's great sigh when we encounter the utter sweetness of grace. Utter sweetness. Jesus, I can't, but I know you can. True for those who know Jesus, true for those who don't. Jesus, I can't, but you can. Let's pray.